This episode of Breaking Walls is sponsored by... Are you a maker, doer, dreamer who enjoys their time alone? Who thrives on working solo? Then you might enjoy the Creative Introvert Podcast. Every week, I bring you musings, tips, and guest interviews in order to inspire and motivate my fellow creative innies. Find the show at thecreativeintrovert.com. Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... What's up, guys? Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 61. My name is James Scully. Today on Breaking Walls, we're going to head to Governor's Island for an on-the-scene report from the Governor's Island art project called Writing on It All. Writing on It All took place last month in June, and in this project, attendees were invited in sessions led by artists and writers to write on interior surfaces of an out-of-use mansion on Governor's Island. I got to see this firsthand. I got to participate. It was very moving, and it was something that really stimulates conversation and communication. No two sessions were alike. Each artist that took over the space each weekend as it was happening put their own spin on how cultural history and the history of Governor's Island were combined. So today, this episode, we'll get a Governor's Island history lesson. I think I need to tell some of the backstory of Governor's Island for those that aren't familiar with it because it informs the viewer and the listener as to what the point of writing on it all is about. So we'll hear audio then from the day, and we'll speak with the project director, Alexandra Chasen. Now, before I go on, I just want to say that if this is the first time you're listening to Breaking Walls and would like to subscribe, please do so on iTunes by searching for Breaking Walls or by following us on SoundCloud at The Wall Breakers. You can also find this podcast on thewallbreakers.com. And if you like these podcasts, please leave us an iTunes rating and a review. It helps the iTunes algorithm, and it'll help more people discover Breaking Walls. And by the way, I'll be expanding the network of places Breaking Walls can be found in the coming months, and I'll give you guys more information as it becomes available. Now to check out our line of New York City Unity t-shirts, please go to jamesthewallbreaker.com slash shop or thewallbreakers.com slash shop. These Unity t-shirts, as I've been saying for the last few months, are typographic t-shirts that use the slang names of the five boroughs of each of the boroughs of New York City to help show unity amongst New Yorkers near and far. Now, for those of you who don't understand what's going on in New York City, I'm sorry, but no explanation will ever suffice. And that, what I mean by that is what it's like to be a New Yorker, what it's like to understand what Governor's Island is all about. The truth is that I think most people do understand whether you are from New York or you're not. And so for those of us, no explanation as to why unity is important will ever be necessary. By the way, The Wall Breakers, we're on all social media outlets at The Wall Breakers, and we're on the web at thewallbreakers.com.
May of 1624, a ship of Dutch settlers named the New Netherland, commanded by Cornelius Jacobson May, landed on what is now known as Governor's Island. This island is located between Manhattan and Brooklyn. As of 2017, it's 172 acres large and sits 366 meters west of Brooklyn and 732 meters south of Manhattan. You see, trade in the North American region of New York State between the Lenape Native Americans and the Dutch, as well as competition between the Dutch and the English, have been ongoing since Henry Hudson first sailed into New York Harbor in 1609. On that ship in May of 1624 were 30 families sent by the Dutch Republic and the Dutch East India Trading Company to take control of the region before the English had a chance to emigrate north from Cape Cod. These families were dispersed throughout the northeast region of today's United States with eight people, that's right, only eight people left here to permanently inhabit what we now know as New York City. Because their numbers were obviously so small, they didn't feel comfortable sitting on, say, Manhattan Island, which was a rocky terrain in some places, wooded land in other areas. It's just a very inhospitable place for only eight people. So they settled on Governor's Island. And New York State, by the way, honors Governor's Island today as the original landing point and the beginning of New York State as a place. These Dutch families, they called the island Neuten Island or Nut Island because the island was known for its many nut trees like the oak, the hickory, and the chestnut that once inhabited it. Just a year later, in June of 1625, 45 additional colonists arrived on the island from three ships known as the horse, the cow, and the sheep. These settlers brought horses, steers, cows, pigs, and sheep with them, and they essentially started a farm on the island before eventually emigrating to Manhattan, just 700 and some odd meters to the north. Many of these settlers, by the way, were not actually Dutch. They were Walloons from present-day Belgium, Huguenots from France, and enslaved Africans, some of which later gained half-free status. Basically, New York was one of the only colonies founded not on some sort of religious need for freedom or from something of the like, but on a need to make money. The Dutch East India Company was one of the first corporations in the history of the modern world. And by 1633, by the way, the Dutch were already on their fifth director general. This one was named Wouter van Twiller, who arrived with a 104-man regiment on Governor's Island, marking for the first time, and far from the last, that the island was used as a military base. Wouter van Twiller later bought Nut Island, Ward's Island, and 15,000 acres of Long Island, and operated a farm on the entire spread of Governor's Island. He reportedly paid two axe heads, a string of beads, and a handful of nails. He did this by securing a deed on June 16, 1637, with two Lenape Native Americans who were located in New Jersey. There was only one catch for this whole thing, though. He did it without the permission of what was then known as the Dutch West India Company, and as you could imagine, they were none too pleased. So Von Twiller, he got Von Axed, and the next year he was replaced by the infamous William Kieft. By the time the British seized control of New Netherlands in 1664, this island was slowly becoming more of an army garrison. By 1674, Governor's Island was then completely under control of the British. Before that time, in the 10 years prior, the Dutch and the British fought back and forth for the island, but by 1674, the British had control of it, and they would continue having control of it for the next 100 years. They saw this island as potentially a retreat for the accommodation of his majesty's governors and some place for the you know the wealthy british to reside in when uh, they wanted to take a vacation but the other thing that they quickly noticed was that this island had very important strategic value for defending both long island and manhattan island 
And by the time of the American Revolution, George Washington's Continental Army built a rudimentary fort on the island and even engaged in fire with the British ships in July of 1776 as Washington's forces retreated up Manhattan Island after the Battle of Brooklyn. After the war, the island continued to be used as a military grounds. In 1794, Fort Jay was built on the original site of the rudimentary fort, and in 1801, Castle Williams was erected with its 40-foot-tall, 8-foot-thick walls and 200-square-foot interior diameter. Both of these forts, by the way, still stand, and both are able to be visited today. Okay, let's stop here for a second because I just mentioned that both of these forts still stand and are able to be visited. So, I haven't mentioned this, but how does one go about visiting Governor's Island in the summertime? Well, thanks to the newly expanded New York City ferry system, it's quite easy. The East River Line and South Brooklyn Line both stop on Governor's Island, and visitors can also take ferries from the Battery Maritime Building at 10 South Street seven days per week, and there are also weekend ferries that depart from Pier 6 in Brooklyn Bridge Park. So, as I was saying, building these forts around New York was a smart move because during the War of 1812, while cities such as Washington, D.C. were burned to the ground, New York saw no combat. As the 19th century progressed, the island continued to be used as a military training ground, an army hospital, and during the Civil War as a prison for captured Confederate soldiers. Fort Jay housed Confederate officers, and Castle Williams housed general soldiers. Housed of course, is a word that's used here in the most basic sense. The conditions were deplorable, disease and starvation was rampant, and generally, let's be thankful that when the war ended in 1865, Americans stopped killing each other and figured out how to compromise and grow. Post-Civil War, there were officers' homes that lined the island that were built. In the 1870s, Colonel Rowe was built, and in the 1890s, Regimental Rowe followed. Now, I should also say that at this point in time, the island was only 70 acres large. I mentioned earlier that it's today 172 acres. Well, if you look at a map of Governor's Island, as Greg Young and Tom Myers of the Bowery Boys podcast have pointed out in their episode, which is number 185, on Governor's Island, you'll see that it's shaped like an ice cream cone with a scoop of ice cream on top. The round ball at the top of the island is the original natural island. During excavations for the building of the IRT subway in the first decade of the 20th century between 1900 and 1904, landfill was used and added 100 acres to the base of the island in the shape of a cone. The island continued this whole time to serve as an army faculty during both world wars and the army inhabited the area until 1965 when the army left it and gave way to the U.S. Coast Guard. Coast Guard saw the island as an opportunity to consolidate its facilities and provide more of them for its schools and as a base for its regional and Atlantic Ocean operations. And this changed the tone completely of the island. Suddenly, there were 3,500 to 4,000 people living on the island forming their own community. Keeping in mind what New York City was like in the 1960s and 70s, this place was almost like a scenic retreat at that point in time. If you've been uh, to Roosevelt Island recently, I have a feeling that it was somewhat similar, just much larger. And the Coast Guard continued to operate here until 1996. When the Coast Guard left the island in 1996, this island essentially became abandoned by the year 2000, with all of its mansions, 
all of its original forts standing there, really just falling into somewhat states of disrepair and being unused. So what to do with a situation like this? Well, in January of 2003, the U.S. government, by George W. Bush, sold the island back to the city of New York through Mayor Michael Bloomberg for the token sum of $1. For the next four years, the city of New York continued to try to figure out what to do with this island and how to rehabilitate it until 2007, when it was finally opened as a park. So where does that leave us today? How does writing on it all figure in? This participatory art project came to the island in 2013. Its artistic director, Alexandra Chasen, is currently an associate professor of literary studies at Lang College, which is part of the New School. She also comes from Boston, Massachusetts. She got a bachelor's degree in European cultural studies in 1984 from Brandeis University. She's got a PhD in modern thoughts and literature from Stanford and a master's degree in fiction writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts. Now, I'm bringing up her accolades because she's uniquely qualified to marry visual arts and literature at a site-specific location. Also, from talking to her, as you'll hear, she's got a strong sense of history both in her own life and in the history of Governor's Island. She'd also tell you, writing on it all would never be possible without program director Zena Goodall, media and communications manager Stephanie Orentes, the many participating artists, and you, the interested, curious, and emotionally connected public. With all that said, writing on it all is a very particular kind of participatory project. I wanted to get inside Alexandra's head. I wanted to know where from her past her inspiration was coming from. Where is the inspiration for this coming from? Like from your own past, basically. <laughs> I think that it comes from my past as a scholar of literature mm -hmm. rather than as a child but of course you do have a childhood story just like most of the people who come through here and as you suggest in my own childhood story somebody wrote my little sister's name on the wall in the basement um, and the only person who couldn't have done it was my little sister because she was three mm. but nobody to this day has ever admitted writing mm. that we all got in trouble mm. but still mystery so there was you know a little moment I don't know why I've never forgotten it because it was really beneath notice but like most people, of course, there is some memory there. And of course, impetus to break the wall. I think about, and this is also true for a lot of other people, it's a very minor prohibition, mm -hmm. but the prohibition against writing on the school desk, the sure. wall, the church pew, the, you know, wherever you are, the bathroom stall, that all those little times you've inhibited yourself from doing it, or you haven't inhibited yourself, you've done it before, does add a little energy mm -hmm. to the writing that people do when they come here, because it does have that little rule-breaking mm -hmm. aspect. I think also, with history being written either by those with the, the most scholarly approach or the largest numbers, and so many people's stories being forgotten, I wonder if throughout history then, those who feel they are in a minority of some sort they don't even feel like they have a voice to contribute, let alone to be able to write something down like that. Yeah, so there are a number of ways that we try to work with that idea or question here. One is, we think of the project as authorizing, as giving authority to anybody to write, even people who have had uh, bad experiences in school or who imagine themselves to be excluded from some special club or special knowledge that qualifies people to write. 
and so you hear the word author in that authorization, mm -hmm. in that authority, and so we do hope there's a little empowerment effect. Sure. That is, everybody gets to be an author in some way. And the other thing is that we invite facilitators who are particularly concerned with social justice, as we are ourselves, and so with representing the some of the huge diversity of voices that are in play, particularly in New York City, where mm -hmm. there's just so many people. Do you find a hesitancy in people? It's interesting. Sometimes people are hesitant. Children are very often the least hesitant. Mm -hmm. They go right for it, and sometimes adults right after them. But adults get into it, mm -hmm. too. It's clearly a permission-granting space. Like, everything about the space says you have permission mm -hmm. to do this. But people are different, you know, and some people hang back and watch and wait for a while and then get engaged. Some people circulate throughout the space, get comfortable with the space. Some people are more focused on the content, the substance of the prompts, and some people are more engaged with the uncomfortability, the unfamiliarity or awkwardness of doing something they've done their whole lives, mm -hmm. but in a really different way. The sure. gestures are different, the surfaces are different. Every little bit of the practice here interrupts a kind of set of assumptions and habits of writing. It's a micro-interruption, but it's a critical interruption. As you can hear in my interview with Alexandra, Governor's Island it's a noisy place. It's very much alive during the summertime. Planes fly overhead, laughter can be heard, and on this day, Writing on It All presented here by Anna Maureen Lara and Latasha N. Nevada Diggs. Their collaboration honored the memory of those who are here that we don't remember. Those Lenape, those Africans, those European poor, and those unknown people from all over the world that have lived and died here on this island. Those whose presence is still felt in subconscious ways, but whose concrete memory has been lost to the sands of time. Here's Latasha and Nevada Diggs on the day of the event. And just be in the space. In this room, you're also welcome to do a po uh, postcard exchange. We have some instructions in there on the um, At 2 o'clock, we'll be asking people to be part of a collective event where we'll repeat what we did right now with everything. So, like a spiritual thing? Sure. And so, and the thing is, it's about time. 
It's about the fact that um, there are countless stories um, told by those that we don't know and those that in the past and those we don't know who will be after us. So if you look at the walls, this room, we're asking the question, who was here, right? Who slept here? Who might have had a farm here? You know, who might have had their first love like under a tree over there? Um, and when you go into the next room, um, which is the hall, who is here? So to ask the question through words, through pictures, through statements, um, through poetry, if you care to be there. Um, who is here? But also how, notice how this flows. You have to move from one room to the next. So that's why we have the altar um, uh, with all of the water, because water flows, bodies flow. Um, and that one, as you know, is the room who was here. And so who came before us? Um, and all of this, the little items on the altar um, are things that were either left here that we came upon from folks who was here, but also um, uh, the items of the axe head, the string of beads um, that was used to purchase the island. Moving on, we go into this room. Who will be here? So we have the light to represent life, but also life hereafter, life in the past. But back to that question, who will be here? So I encourage you now to get into the activity. So pick up a marker, and you can move into any room you want, um, but thinking about these questions. One of the other things I wanted to say about, um, as you were recounting the past of the island, is that we do believe that writing is a site-specific mm -hmm. art. That's something that's usually associated with other arts, like with sculpture, for example, or even with theater. But writing is almost always imagined as not taking place anywhere. Right. It takes place on the inside of somebody's head, but not in a place in the world. And we want to say every act of writing is located in a particular time sure. and place. And so in order to enhance the, bring forward the sometimes hidden site-specific nature of writing, um, we try to encourage the facilitators to engage with the site in some way, but that can mean a million different things, from its house to its a domestic space to its on Governor's Island, which has the history that you just mentioned, several histories, to it's in the middle, it's an island, to it's surrounded by water, to it's in New York City. Mm -hmm. So there's so many different kinds of ways to engage with the site in its specificity, but almost all the sessions do in some way address something particular about the site. And it's a way of acknowledging the history that you referred to as a way of understanding, embodying the fact that that history is writing through us. Mm -hmm whether we're conscious of it or not, so the more conscious, the more conscious. There's something that Alexandra helped me to more consciously realize upon talking to her. It's that our entire history, it gets written through us on a daily basis, whether we're comfortable expressing ourselves through voice, through written word, through any number of personal expressions, or even if we aren't and we feel trapped or powerless or devoid of human opportunity, that gets written through us as well, in age lines, in stomach cancers, in heartache, in untold 
quiet desperations as we walk through this world. I've often felt my most powerless when I felt alone and isolated, and I've almost always felt my most empowered when I cared about my fellow people and understood that life, my life, has value on its own and even more value when tied to the collective consciousness of society. We've got to care about each other in order to create independence and revolution so that we don't live a life of long regret. And those of us that are more fortunate than others, we have a responsibility to be our brothers and sisters keepers. Right, Boston originally, mm -hmm. and you're a scholar, a writer, and you've been involved in both, it seems, visual arts, but also literary arts. Yeah. But you do feel a sense of obvious responsibility where you might, you could possibly not care one way or another about other people's voices and things like that, but you do. Why is that? I don't know exactly where that comes from, but I will say that the experience of teaching in university is, in some ways, a wonderful kind of work. I love my job, I love teaching. And I'm constantly aware of working in an institution that is walled, mm. that is exclusionary from the time people apply and don't get in mm -hmm. to they apply and they do get in and then they're inside the walls. Always experience academia as a self-reproduction machine. Yes, it deals in knowledge, but it deals more than that in reproducing itself as an institution. It's a also, right? Absolutely. And also it needs to, even the parts of it that are not business-oriented need to justify their own existence, need to justify their own continuation. Mm -hmm. And so the limitations of teaching inside the university on a kind of political and social level for me are always very palpable. I feel like here, even though it doesn't look like a literature classroom, it doesn't look like a writing classroom, given what I personally mean by my reasons to teach literature, to teach writing, I am serving those exact purposes here but in a classroom without Switzerland. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about academia, and I went to Pratt Institute, so I'm aware of what it's like to go to a private college. Yep. And you get a great education, and yep. you certainly pay for it at yep. the same time. Did you find that 
when teaching in Switzerland, was it any different than, say, Columbia or any of the universities in, in the United States that you've taught at, in the way that they approached what the business of education is? Yes, extremely different. For one thing, um, students come to college already having chosen a track, so it's not doesn't work along the kind of shopping around liberal arts model that a lot of you know, liberal arts colleges work on here. And so it's not like doing a major and then lots of electives, it's like doing a major. Mm -hmm. And so students already come with a very high level of preparation. The culture of the classroom is really different. They are prepared to receive lecture. So trying to have a conversation was a little bit of a, a challenge to mm -hmm. a lot of students in Switzerland. They love it. But So I teach here in a seminar college. Uh, so it's all about the conversation. In Switzerland, they needed a little bit of encouragement to have opinions and speak up in class because the training is really to receive the knowledge. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's just an American thing that we speak up without, you know, they're the old children speak when spoken to, but it seems like we grow up, maybe it's also an East Coast thing, coming from, I'm from New York, you're from Boston, people, you know, the, really, the opinions it, are always said. Yeah, it varies a lot from school to school, and even within school, there are plenty of universities in the United States where you're going to seeing huge lecture classes, and so it's not that there's no places in the States where the students are expected to just passively receive lecture, that's um, very commonplace. But the particular emphasis in some places on a seminar where people are supposed to come and vocally participate that I have not seen that much on an undergraduate level in okay, Europe. So I know what some of you are thinking, and I have to say, you've been trained to think this way. How about, sure, writing on it all is great, but I couldn't get something like that accomplished. Or how about, this is great and all, but I wouldn't even know where to begin to try to do any of this for myself. Well, my silly voices aside, defeatism is exactly what writing on it all is helping to conquer. So. How did this program find its way to Governor's Island? It just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I think by now Governor's Island was in the process of trying to uh, produce a lot more programming. They wanted mm -hmm. to fill all of these houses with sure. programming all summer long. And so we just happened to jump in at a time when they were doing a big expansion. I think now they're at capacity. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that they're still ex that kind of expansive and open. It was kind of a, a lucky confluence sure. of factors. So yes, it was that easy, but but don't try this but, at home. <laughs> right, right, right place at the right time, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just too good to be true. It's a free house, mm -hmm. you know, in which we can do anything we want mm -hmm. as long as we, you know, make it safe for participants and return it to its condition, original condition at the end of the season. So, but today, when this session is over today, mm -hmm. these walls will get repainted again, yes. white. So mm -hmm. each Saturday, it starts anew. It depends. Sometimes we have artists who want to work with or excited to work with traces of former sessions in mm -hmm. some way. What we do for the facilitators is promise them that we will prepare the space the way they want it. Okay. If they want it all white walls, they got all white walls. Mm -hmm. So we're a little bit, you know, have to be a little nimble on our toes in response to that. But yes, mostly we're painting it over and at the end of the season, absolutely every surface. I guess that finally brings us to the age-old question that we were trying to answer that day. Where do we go from here? During the off-season here, what is the process like to renew for the next year? Or is anything going on in the off-season at the space here? The Hurricane Sandy happened, things like that can happen, natural disasters. Oh. How do you approach each, is it like totally a new time? You know, you come here 2018, it's like we've never done this before. Or, yes and no. We put together a whole new slate of facilitators and events. We do a little bit of paperwork to re-up with Governor's Island every year. 
Governor's Island. As far as I know, the houses are closed during the winter. There's not much that happens. There's no utilities in them other than electricity, so they're not all that usable in the winter. Uh, although there are places on Governor's Island where there's activity all year round. There's a Harbor High School, public high school. There's Lower Manhattan Cultural Council has studios, and there's a kind of skeleton staff of Governor's Island too. So mm -hmm. there's some stuff that goes on in the winter, but a lot less. None of this like sure. profusion of public programming. Mm -hmm. Now, for you, been teaching for a long time. As you approach another decade, as you come to the 2020s, even. How far ahead do you look at this point in your life? Are you very present in yourself? Or I think some of this stuff, what you're talking about earlier about the history of being in a space, being in yourself, within you, without you, a macro and micro level, all intertwined. On a day-to-day -day basis, when it's Tuesday afternoon for you, where are you with that? Yeah, I don't look too far ahead. In terms of the project, the looking ahead, we do think about what kinds of projects we might like to take on, sort of sub-initiatives, and we've tried a number of different things. And right now, what I'm hoping is that we're going to be able to make a book, because my thought is that this is a low-budget and replicable kind of model, and that um, because it's so low-budget, that it should be something that people want to try in other cities mm -hmm. that they know how to do and that maybe that would spark some inspiration of related possibilities and so we're actually looking to expand not so much into the future as into space we mm -hmm. want to be connected with people writers and artists who are doing similar kinds of participatory work and particularly around writing in other cities as well on Writing On It All, please go to writingonitall.com. That's W-R-I-T-I-N-G, onitall.com. This program is also available on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter social media handles at Writing On It All. Thank you so much, Alexandra and Latasha, for giving me some of your time in the middle of an incredibly busy day. I appreciate that very much. If you'd like to reach out to me for any reason, please don't hesitate. You can do so at james at thewallbreakers.com. As I mentioned on the open, if you've gotten this podcast via thewallbreakers.com or some other web means and would like to subscribe, please do so on iTunes and on SoundCloud by searching for either Breaking Walls on iTunes or at The Wallbreakers on SoundCloud. And hey, if you've gotten this far in this podcast, do us a giant favor and leave a rating and review on iTunes. It would mean a lot to me because it'll help the iTunes algorithm and help more people discover this podcast. The Wallbreakers Unity t-shirt line, it's available at thewallbreakers.com slash shop or jamesthewallbreaker.com slash shop. The music featured on today's episode of Breaking Walls was George Winston's Living in the Country from his LP Summer, John Sebastian Bach's BWV 0525 Sonate and Trio Number 1, I might have just butchered that somehow, also Hookah by Wind Spirit Drum on the album Lenape Spirits. Our intro music is Cesar Frank's Symphony in D Minor Part 3, the finale. Our outro music will be Modest Mussorgsky's Pictures at an Exhibition, Promenade Number 1. I will be back again on Breaking Walls episode number 62 on August 1st. August's theme will be Harvest. That comes from the time of the year in the, uh, uh, really in America, when you think of the harvest season and, and farming, harvesting the grains for the upcoming fall. I'm still putting together a plan for this episode, and you'll hear more about what its specific topic will be in the next couple of weeks. 
I hope you have enjoyed today's episode. Remember, keep getting out there and keep breaking those walls, or write on those walls if you don't feel like you can break them yet. It's really the same thing. It's very important to remember that we're not alone in this thing called life, and with unity, all kinds of independence and revolution are possible, specifically from fear. My name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode number 61, and until August 1st, I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. This is WBBN, the Wallbreakers Broadcasting Network. Thank you, and good afternoon.